Hello and welcome to the Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trusts Handbook, and your host for this weekly look at all things to do with investment trusts. We are an independent organisation, but to save the regulators from doing so, please let me remind you that this podcast is provided for information and educational purposes only, and nothing you hear from any of the speakers today should be regarded as constituting investment advice. Perish the thought. The first week of the new quarter, a four-day one because of the Easter holiday, kicked off with softer equity markets and firmer bond markets as yields came down. A disappointing PMI reading for the services sector in the United States and a higher jobless claims number, both suggesting a slowing economy, helped to send the Nasdaq down sharply, although the S&P 500 index finished the week roughly flat and both the FTSE 100 and FTSE All Share indices finished up more than 1%. Gilts and US Treasuries were firmer, the 10-year benchmark yield on the latter dropping from 3.5% to 3.3%, where it sits nearly 1.5% below the three-month Treasury yield, and at a level similar to the equivalent gilt in the UK. The yield curve remains very inverted, indeed more so than it has been for many years. Also notable was the sight of gold finally breaking through the $2,000 an ounce barrier and coming within a hair's breadth of surpassing the all-time high of around $2,010 an ounce, which we saw in August 2020, while we were still living with the immediate consequences of the pandemic. The investment trust index, meanwhile, was down 0.4% over the past four days, with the average discount on the index remaining stubbornly above 16% albeit as a market cap-weighted index, the index's performance is heavily influenced by how the largest trusts in the index perform. Uh, Ten trusts account for 27% of the index performance by market capitalization, and this week of those ten, we saw some recovery in the price of the four infrastructure and renewable trusts, uh, offset by declines for the six mostly generalist or global equity trusts that make up the balance of the top ten. It has been the notable movement from premium to discount in the alternative asset sector that has played the biggest part in the continued derating of the investment trust sector over the past few months. It was, however, notable this week that alternative asset trusts made up the bulk of this week's positive gains, notable among them being a number of commercial property trusts, helped both by falling bond yields and heartened, I think, by the news that Blackstone the big US private equity group, has made an agreed bid for one of the trusts in the logistics sector, that is uh, Industrials REIT, ticker MLI, at a significant premium to its pre-announcement share price. Uh, Trusts with a growth style were, meanwhile, prominent amongst the decliners. To discuss the outlook for the sector and the latest macro outlook, I'm joined this week by Peter Spiller, now in his 41st year as the long-serving manager of Capital Gearing Trust. And by a newcomer to this podcast, Andrew McHattie, who is the founder and editor of the Investment Trust's monthly newsletter. He's been doing that job for the past 27 years, so he tells me. Which means that between us, therefore, the three of us this week can claim to have been following the Investment Trust world for well over 100 years collectively. Which does not make us smarter than anyone else, but certainly more experienced than most. Although, if I was being humble... I might echo the legendary words of the football pundit Alan Hansen when he said, you cannot win anything with kids, 
only for Manchester United to go on and win the Premiership title that year with a notably youthful team, just as uh, Arsenal are threatening to do again this year. Grey-haired trust observers are similarly extremely helpful in my experience, but uh, with exceptions. More from both of these wise old birds anyway later. On the news front this week, we've had another spate of results. Those reporting annual results included Merchants, ticker MRCH, which is managed by Simon Gurgle of Allianz Global Investors. Merchants is a in-demand UK equity trust, which reported NAV total return of 7.3% in the 12 months to January this year. Note that any trust producing annual results to the end of January will have benefited from a strong performance of equity markets in the first month of the year. And therefore, when compared to those reporting to the end of December, will look notably much stronger. But the underlying reality may be very similar. And Merchants offers a fully covered yield of 4.8%. Also reporting on a year to the end of January were Mercantile, ticker MRC, another UK equity trust, this one with more of a multi-cap strategy, managed by JP Morgan which reported an 8.5% NAV total return, which was 1% below its benchmark, though with some redeeming features as we discuss later. Also, results to the end of January from North American Income Trust, ticker NAIT, which said it produced a positive NAV total return of 9.6% in that period, ahead of both of the two benchmarks it uses to monitor performance. Its dividend was also fully covered, and the yield there is just over 4% currently. Next to report was Bailey Gifford China Growth, ticker BGCG, another trust that uh, we discussed in a moment where the NAV total return for the year to January was minus 5.7%, some 3.5% behind its benchmark. Sticking with equity investment trusts, reporting though this time for the calendar year 2022, we heard annual results from Aberdeen Asia Income, ticker AAIF, which reporting a negative total return of 3.6% in calendar year 2022. That was 3% or so better than its benchmark, however. And also from Impact's Environmental Assets, ticker IEM. This is a one and a quarter billion pound trust in market capitalization terms and has been quietly and successfully uh, pursuing a specialist environmental investment strategy since way back in 2001, so very much an early pioneer in this particular field. It boasts an excellent long-term track record, a share price total return of more than 200% over the last 10 years, uh, but it did run into strong headwinds last year with an NAV total return of minus 15%. The board has been actively buying back shares in line with the zero discount policy that it's had in place since January 2019. Uh, And as a result, the shares continue to trade at or just uh, below, I think at the moment, NAV. There were some uh, more impressive annual results announcements from a number of names in the Alternative Asset Trust area. For calendar year 2022, in the lead for this particular group was Gresham House Storage, ticker GRID or GRID, the Specialist Battery Storage Trust, which provided more colour on the impressive 39% NAV total return it recorded in 2022, which in turn was a combination of higher energy prices and strong operational performance, with another batch of new construction projects also expected to come to fruition this year. Gresham House Storage has a 30% market share of the battery storage market, 
uh, and is one of the very few infrastructure trusts still to be trading on a premium. It's delivered a compound 70% annualised return since its IPO in 2018, managed to squeeze in a £150 million equity raise last summer before the IPO window closed as bond yields rose, and continues to make bullish noises about its ability to continue meeting its 15% annualised NAV total return target in the near term. Not far behind in the performance stakes last year was Downing Renewables and Infrastructure, ticker DORE, which produced a 19.5% NAV total return in 2022, paid a well-covered 5p dividend, and increased its target dividend for this year by 7.6% to 5.38p, which puts it on a prospective yield of around 5% at the current share price, 108p. Despite having a market capitalization of just 200 million, which is uh, relatively small by sector standards, this trust, which only came to the market a little over two years ago, trades on a discount of nearly 10%. And it is one of a handful of alternative asset trusts which have come out to say that they will be starting a share buyback program, uh, no doubt hoping to get back to a point where the shares re-rate and it can raise more equity to grow its asset base, uh, which looks to be needed in this particular case. SDCL Energy Efficiency Trust, a ticker SEIT, also announced this week that it is planning a £20 million share buyback programme. UK Commercial Property, ticker UKCM, meanwhile became the latest property trust to provide more flavour on a significant decline in capital value, according to its annual results, with an 18.1% decline in NAV total return for the last calendar year, uh, not helped in this case by its overweight to the industrial sector. Uh, The trust trades on a discount of more than 35%, which is wider than the broader commercial property peer group, and it yields now around 6.3%. On the corporate front, uh, perhaps the most significant news, though it was not much help to uh, UK Commercial Property Trust, was the announcement that the board of Industrials REIT, ticker MLI, has accepted an offer from Blackstone, the giant US private equity firm, to buy the trust for 162p a share, uh, which is 42% above the share price the day before the announcement was made and values the trust at £480 million. Blackstone also taking over responsibility for the about £200 million in debt. Uh, the shares accordingly jumped sharply on the news, although the offer is interestingly some 20% below the peak share price that uh, Industrials REIT had just 12 months ago. That's a good indicator of the change in sentiment uh, and fundamentals for the sector, you might think. Nevertheless, the news prompted some to argue that this is evidence that the sharp derating of trust we've seen in the commercial property sector and uh, in the industrial subsector in particular uh, may now be overdone. It provides some evidence, in other words, that discounts to NAV uh, may have widened too far. Shares in other logistic trusts perked up between about 2 and 4% during the course of this week. In addition, there were other notable deal or asset announcements from the Infrastructure Trust Hickel, from uh, Octopus Renewals, ticker ORIT, from Syncona, ticker SYNC, and Aquila European Renewables, ticker AERI. While the board of Home REIT, whose shares you'll recall have been suspended since January after complete collapse of its ability to collect rent from its tenants, 
The board said in an update that they have now received six proposals from firms wishing to take on the investment advisory role of this troubled housing for the homeless fund from Alvarium. The trust is also considering the sale of some of its properties to realise cash, uh, has repaid a, uh, a chunk of its debt, which still remains uh, quite substantial, at around $200 million, and promises another update shortly. So this saga is not yet resolved as far as shareholders are concerned. For subscribers to the Moneymaker Circle this week, we have an in-depth profile of Greencate UK Wind, ticker UKW, and that will be followed next week by another profile of Fidelity European, ticker FEV, managed by Sam Morse, a steady performer over many years. Uh, together with all the news results and performance figures from the sector as usual, including the interims and uh, NME updates I've not had the space to cover today, which include uh, interims from Bailey Gifford Japan and JP Morgan Emerging Markets Income. In the next few days, I'll also be posting my quarterly video review of the quarter just ended, uh, turbulent as it has been. My first port of call this week uh, was to speak to Peter Spiller, the manager of Capital Gearing Trust, uh, ticker CGT, the flexible investment trust, which has an excellent long-term record in producing absolute positive returns, only failing to do so twice in the 40-plus years that he has been manager of the trust. Its 2022-23 financial year does look, however, like being another of those rare years, with shareholders looking at a potential small negative return, maybe 3-4%. So if you thought that uh, current market conditions are particularly challenging, uh, which they are, you might take some comfort from the fact that even wise old veterans such as Peter have also found navigating the current uncertainties in markets less easy than usual. Uh, Capital Gearing Trust's small decline is still well ahead of the return of most balanced portfolio managers, however, over the last 12 months, uh, a period during which we've seen both equities and bonds fall significantly in value. The trust currently remains in full-on defensive mode, with more than 20% in, quotes, dry powder, uh, that is in cash and uh, short-term liquidity instruments, 48% in government and corporate bonds, uh, mainly index-linked, though the trust's investment in uh, conventional gilts has also been increased sharply, and just 28% in risk assets, including equities, and that is one of the lowest figures the trust has had historically. That positioning stems from Peter's consistent view over the last 18 months that we have clearly moved from a deflationary to an inflationary environment, and there is no going back to a zero interest rate world. While inflation is clearly heading down, he is doubtful that central banks will be able to get back to the 2% inflation target they've set themselves before a likely recession and or worries about financial stability force them to change course in their interest rate policy. With the US fiscal deficit still at 5% and set to rise further despite record low unemployment, an almost unheard of combination. The scope for further fiscal stimulus is also clearly limited, all of which makes for a difficult investment background. So the question, of course, for all this is what, as investors, should we be doing? And we'll come on to what you are doing. But I think what this fundamental shift has created has taken us back to a world in which we're actually comparing any kind of asset to the kind of return we can get on a government bond at a short or longer Indeed. duration. And if you can get 
something very impressive by recent standards from, say, a two-year guilt, everything else has got to work a bit harder to qualify as uh, an alternative. That is totally right. In fact, um, you needn't go as far as two years. We're getting 4.35% on treasury bills, which is um, very nice because they're tax-free within capital gearing. So that works very well. But the really important point of determining an individual's asset allocation is not just the concerns of inflation probably getting high and so forth, but the concern that financial instability is a real threat. Because as mentioned earlier, we've come into this period of more normal cycles with debt levels that are very far from normal. And it's a question of how we adjust. The economy has to adjust to that, and it won't be quick. It will take time. And the New York Fed has just come out with a rather alarming paper, which suggests that the vulnerability of various different shadow banks and banks themselves to relatively modest falls in asset prices is really very great. And there is every sign that we will see some falls in at least some areas. So I understand that 17% of all mezzanine loans on commercial property in the US are in default. So these are just straws in the wind that suggest that the um, financial system is very fragile. So as well as wanting to maximize return, I strongly believe we need to take account of the possibility of very great uh, problems within the financial system. That's not all bad news because it would probably require a pivot by the Federal Reserve and the Bank of England if, if it's happening here as well, which obviously would be very helpful to fix interest and helpful to balance sheets as well in the short term. However, what it would mean is that the anti-inflation fight would have had to be abandoned before it had been won. So I think it will portend yet higher rates of inflation to come. And that is, I think, what you're expecting, is that Indeed. the fight against inflation will not be beaten. But that then leaves this other issue, which is, I mean, suppose we do go back to where, where say, inflation stabilizes around 4 or 5% rather than the 2% mm-hmm. target. A 4% yield on a government bond is not particularly great news in that context. I mean, are we bound, therefore, eventually, that most investors are actually going to lose some real wealth over the next whatever period that is? And obviously, you're in that game of, of seeking to protect investors against real losses. Right. It's going to get a lot tougher, isn't it, for you and, of course, more generally for investors who don't have the same, if I may say so, vast amount of experience that you do. Well, there's some good news, which I'll come to in, in, in a second. But broadly, when debt is excessive relative to assets and incomes, there are really only two ways of dealing with it historically. One is that quite a lot of debt gets defaulted on. And that probably involves a very weak economy or deep recession at a minimum. Or you have financial repression. And actually, we've seen an example of financial repression working in the last 12 months. So obviously, inflation has been horribly high. But that has meant that nominal GDP has been very much higher than interest rates. And that, in turn, has meant that debt in in the US has fallen by about 20% as a percentage of GDP, 250 to 230, roughly. And that will be great, but it's obviously not going to continue on the forecast that the market is employing, which is a very modest inflation going forward. But the good news is, to come back to that, is that the returns offered are just so much better in low-risk assets 
than they used to be. I mean, the nominal interest rates uh, provide, if you're not paying tax anyway, some reasonable level of protection in the short term. But if you look at markets like index linked in the UK, we've seen an improvement for long index link from minus close to 3% guaranteed to lose nearly 3% every year for how long, however long the bond lasted to the current situation where you make a modest, it's not huge, but a modest positive real return. And particularly we think that the shorter index link, so the, the, the 24s out to the 29s will provide a lot of protection and actually guarantee positive real returns, which is a very different situation from where we were 15 months ago, because then you had to accept really very poor returns if you wanted to earn low-risk assets. And hence the creation of the, of the comment, Tina, there is no alternative to any equities. Well, now there really is an alternative. So that's helpful. And we do. Our own disposition is that we have 45% of our assets in index-linked bonds of one kind or another. So the American ones yield much more than the UK, of course, about one and a half. And also credit markets are offering much better returns. So we had a particular opportunity following the trust debacle when credit spreads blew out as well as the nominal bond market being weak. And we expanded our credit portfolio quite markedly then. We've been actually reducing it since because those conditions have been reversing. But we still have about 13% in short-term high-quality credit with average duration of about 18 months. So there are plenty of places to hide. More interesting is what's happened to those alternatives where prices have been very weak. So to start off with, with the ones that have behaved best, um, renewable, I guess the, the only real negative for them has been the extraordinary windfall tax, which a government which purports to be in favor of expanding uh, renewable capacity has put on the industry and thus put all the stocks below their asset value and therefore they can't raise money in order to expand renewable industry. So that I think that might be alleviated in some way because it's become very apparent what the consequences have been. But other than that, they still look as though they are on very reasonable discount rates now that they've widened out. And their balance sheets are in reasonable shape because they have tremendous cash flows. And, and very often, all their debt has been fixed going forward. So that's uh, very important. And I think that's an area that remains reasonably interesting. So the emphasis on, on being fixed is not just that the price is fixed, but the availability. So it's been a very long time since we've been in a financially unstable period. But the key lesson is it isn't just that you have to pay higher interest rates if you're a less good, less high quality borrower, but you may not be able to borrow at all. That um, lending criteria tend to tighten and that's when you get fire sales, obviously, of assets as people desperately try to, to shore up their position. So when it comes to real estate, I think there is going to be a lot of distress in secondary and tertiary real estate with respect to offices and retail. So as mentioned, that fall of 21% since June is a, is a big fall, big fall. So it wouldn't be surprising to me to see some rights issues in that area, uh, both here and on the continent. 
And certainly the desired balance sheet rationally should be much less geared, much less levered than used to be the case. Because, as I said earlier, a great deal of money was made on the liability side, that's to say by borrowing money, which um, was very, very cheap, particularly in real terms. Whereas now, to borrow money from a bank with the sort of margin that these companies usually pay would yield very, very little excessive any at all over the return from a property. So it doesn't make sense to have the same level of leverage as used to prevail. The correct balance sheet should be much, much stronger than it was in the period of low interest rates. Um, Unfortunately, that means that if everybody is trying to do that, they've all got buildings for sale or as it might be not for sale or or, uh, whatever. So um, that, I think, is not going to be very helpful to those asset markets. In the short term, over the next few years, we'll work it all out. Yeah, so it's not going to get better in the near term for the property companies. What about uh, private equity and even venture capital? There, There's a lot of very big discounts out there already, discounting yes. um, what's going to happen, one thinks. Do you think that's going to be remedied anytime soon? A lot of people seem to think, going around saying, well, of course, they're very cheap because the discounts are so wide. But uh, that doesn't automatically follow, does it? Well, the key thing is, John, discount to what? I mean, the word discount implies a discount to the current realizable value. And we just have to accept that historic valuations may bear little relation to that current value. So taking this separately, private equity has benefited from the fact that actually the economies kept going rather better than, than expected. So nothing could be worse for a highly levered private equity company than a recession where the revenues fall and the profits fall, combined with high interest rates on the debt used to finance it. But so far, we've only had the second of those problems. If we get a recession, which I say is quite likely, but definitely not uh, assured, then you do get both of the problems applying, and I would expect quite a lot of distress in the private equity valuations. Venture capital has suffered because the publicly quoted equivalents, so very often they're in technology of of one kind or another, those publicly quoted equivalents have seen a huge derating from the peak of the NASDAQ market. And valuers, as I understand it, can only use either recent transactions or, at worst, the, the general partner's valuation. So in the nature of things, these lag reality by a long way when prices are coming down. So that doesn't say anything about particular portfolios, because if your cash flows are rising very rapidly because your technology is working really well and taking market share, you may well be fine. The problem for all of us is the extent to which these assets are black boxes. So we just don't know. So unsurprisingly, we tend to discount the price quite a lot for fear that the outcome might be at the bottom end of that funnel of uncertainty. So we've seen not just pure venture capital companies trading on large discounts, but trusts which have a substantial private equity or a venture capital component have also been derated very sharply. So one example of that would be Rothschild Investment Trust. There, there is some um, sign of hope because the trust has been buying back its shares reasonably aggressively, and other 
people associated with the manager have been buying the shares. So I think it's a fair assumption that neither of those things would have occurred had the true asset value, as they believe it to be, not been higher than the current share price. So I think one can take some comfort from that. Of course, most venture capital companies are not in a position to do that because they don't have spare cash. Right. Okay. So that might be a convenient way just to take a, a slight detour quickly just to talk about, I mean, one of your big concerns has always been about the governance of investment trusts. And yes. we've seen this uh, rather unfortunate episode at Scottish Mortgage, which is one of the trusts that you've just been talking about. They have a high percentage of private unlisted businesses. Mm-hmm. What's your reading of, of that uh, rather bizarre situation where we had a non-executive director effectively accusing the chairwoman of the board and the board itself for being kind of not up to the job and then kind of being forcibly removed effectively. We haven't seen something like that for a long time, I don't think. It's not very good news for the sector, is it? No, we haven't. Whatever the rights and wrongs, it does tend to undermine confidence, doesn't it? Um, And I think we've seen that reflected in in the Scottish mortgage price. As mentioned earlier, we don't know what the true value of the unquoted assets is, but it is certainly true but unfortunately, they got sucked into much more private equity in the latter years. Based on the success, one has to always acknowledge when talking about Scottish mortgage, they've had fantastic success over a long period. And even now, if you were in the early years, you're making good money. But the big problem in bear markets in your sector, and obviously there has been a bear market in, in technology, is such private assets as they do have tend to rise as a proportion of the whole in their books, and the gearing tends to rise. So they do have a a real issue. I do read that Bailey Gifford, who run this trust, have a very significant team looking at their private equity holdings. So I'm quite surprised by the criticisms of Mr. Bide. And um, I guess the truth will come out over time. But I certainly wouldn't be inclined to accuse them of negligence in that way of not having the capacity to to investigate their private equity companies. But they are, by definition, high risk. And without going into the salacious details here, I was also going to ask you about the events that happened at Home REIT, which is uh, shares are suspended and there appears to be a number of issues around that. As a general proposition, rather than talking about specific cases, perhaps, you know, we've seen a very uh, dramatic increase in the number of investment trusts coming to the market until last year, anyway, when IPOs dried up. You can understand why brokers and so on would want to bring new companies to the market. But do you think that uh, this is sort of part of the normal cycle when you go into a bear market? Quite a number of uh, recent arrivals may turn out to be perhaps uh, disappointing, shall I say, or perhaps the sector as a whole might uh, be time for some trust. Right. Well. well, I hope that isn't true, Jonathan. And I have no reason to believe that other quoted companies are in that same category. However, there is a real problem that liquidity has been deteriorating, actually, over time. And the process that you refer to of companies coming to the market worked very well if they were early enough and able to come back again when their assets have performed well and raise more money at a premium and get to a size where um, liquidity is adequate. Unfortunately for the later ones, it is not notably that their assets have particularly underperformed other assets of the same kind. It's just that they have run out of time, or they did run out of time, until all these things went to a discount. And then, of course, they couldn't raise money. So they now have 
a real problem of being an unviable size and trading at discounts uh, that reflect that. Yeah. So if we come back then to talk about the discounts we're seeing in the investment trust market, I mean, the average on the index, which is not necessarily representative, I hasten to add, but has gone out to 16, 17%, which is pretty wide by recent historical standards, apart from during real crises like the pandemic in 2008. Is that partly a reflection of liquidity? Uh, or what are your thoughts on that? What, uh, what's behind that? And where's it going to go from here? Right. Well, I think that uh, there is an element of liquidity. But you have to remember that the Scottish mortgage is so big that its 25% discount, whatever it is, actually is quite significant in that calculation that you have just described. And it's interesting that there are still quite a lot of trusts that probably you quite like to buy, which trade on, on still pretty narrow discounts. So the dispersion has got greater. But there's also, I think, a bigger premium for liquidity than there used to be, and which there used to be in other bear markets. I think it's just, just notably more pronounced. And this is partly because of, of regulation, and it's um, partly because the owners have got more and more concentrated. We saw uh, yesterday the Rathbones and Investec getting together, and that's absolutely fine. But it does have the drawback for the investment trust market, that presumably there'd be one central desk which is driving purchases and or sales. Whereas there used to be two acting independently and presumably from time to time doing the opposite to each other and therefore liquidity being absolutely fine. We've also heard news of, you know, Peel Hunt and Senkos tying up and so on. I mean, that consolidation in that market is going on as well. Yes, with less immediate problems, I think, for the trust market. But yeah. So basically, that means probably if your market scenario is right, the investment trust sector is basically going to have to shrink a little bit. We've seen some mergers in certain sectors. I noticed um, both in the property market and in uh, something like Aberdeen, smaller companies' income, sort of saying, <laughs> come and get us kind of thing, or we've got to get together. So you think that's going to happen? And is it going to be significant? Well, as you know, Jonathan, there are a very large number of trusts which through no fault of their own. So these changes in liquidity have been um, largely determined by regulation, as a matter of fact. But nevertheless, they are of a size where they, are, they do not offer a viable vehicle for anyone. And they continue at what I was reading a broker the other day, are called perma-discounts, i.e. they're on a discount and there's no realistic likelihood that they will ever be anything else. And so there is clearly a desirable consolidation and reduction in the number of those. So they could either merge with someone else to become more adequate size, or they could adopt a zero discount model if they've got a credible manager and hope that they will grow. And if they don't, then obviously that allows everyone to redeem. So that's the end of them. But if you've got a credible product, I'd say it's worth the gamble because the alternative is, is not to be viable anyway. So you have to do something, I think, as, as directors. But it's very tough. I do understand it's very tough for directors to be put onto a board and the first board meeting to say, well, what we need to do is either grow or quit, basically, is what the situation actually is. But um, no doubt, psychologically, that's quite difficult. <laughs> Indeed it is. So, I mean, but you're, one of the things that you do in capital gearing tasks or have done historically is look out for some situations where you can profit effectively from uh, trusts uh, going out of business or whatever or uh, adopting discount controls or whatever. Um, yes. Are you seeing a lot of opportunities at the moment? Uh, you would have thought with discounts as wide as they are, if you believe the number, which as you said, is not really right. realistic. Are you finding opportunities there as well? 
So I, I don't want to talk about particular situations where we're involved, but um, first of all, I, I need to emphasize we are not there to wind them up. We are there to help them grow. And that's much more satisfactory from our point of view. But what we do insist on is that where directors have made promises, they should keep them. And very often we read uh, comments like, circumstances have not been normal for a long time, for the last couple of years. We initially, among a few others, put that clause in, so to speak, to our commitment not to have a low discount, to cover periods like October 87. So in, in October 87, there was literally no bid for most equities. Therefore, it was impossible to know what the asset value actually was. So in those circumstances, obviously, it makes no sense to buy in stock because you don't know whether you're disadvantaging the continuing shareholders. But in all other circumstances, i.e. where you do know what the asset value is, then you should keep to that commitment, and we definitely do. But there are plenty of trusts who make vague, aspirant comments, like it would be better if the discount was lower. But they don't pursue it with nearly enough vigor. And one of the issues is that there appears to be a belief, among some boards anyway, that if you've made a promise that your discount will not be more than, say, five, and it's 10, if you buy some shares in, you've done your job, notwithstanding the discount remains at 10. So it's very clear what you need to do. If the discount is 10 and your promise is five, you need to buy with sufficient vigor and insufficient amounts to bring it down to five, because that's what you've committed to your, your shareholders. And uh, you know the movement is called Investment Trust, Johnson, and the key word there is trust. So it's really important that investors can believe commitments when they're made. And we're not seeing that universally across the sector at the moment, perhaps. You're right. I mean, it is true that some trusts have done a lot more than others. I mean, I saw these mm. figures the other day that I think, you know, Pershing Square Holdings, for example, has bought back 25% of its shares over the last five years or something like that. The really interesting thing about that, in fact, just to interrupt, is that um, if you look at the Pershing Square statement for the last year, the second biggest contributor to their performance, positive contributor, was the profit from buying in shares. Right. So there you are. There's a template. It hasn't yet done that much for the discount either in that case, but uh, yes. <laughs> despite all that vigor, but maybe that's another story. Okay. So finally, uh, Peter, I think I have to uh, draw this to a close, but I'd just like to ask you, I mean, as you said, half your portfolio is in fixed interest bonds and your risk asset uh, holding is pretty small by historical standards. Uh, but you do have a couple of sectors that you think look interesting. And one of those is... Uh, energy stocks, and yes. the other is Japan. The energy stocks, I think, understand the story, but tell us about the Japanese, the case for Japan in this. Well, world. the case for Japan is essentially that uh, Japanese companies for years and years and years have been accumulating cash and have very strong balance sheets as a result. So quite different from most companies around the world, most markets around the world. But the really important thing is that the yen has been so extraordinarily weak that Japan has become very competitive. I understand it's cheaper to rent a software engineer in Japan than it is in Vietnam. And according to Rishi Sharma, the, um, the wages in Japan paid in factories are fully competitive with those in China. So um, it's a very different situation. For a very long time, it wasn't the Japanese companies weren't investing, but all their investment was going into Asia into building factories in Southeast Asia. 
Japan's as competitive as it now seems to be, there's really quite a good chance that that flow will be diverted at least in part into Japan, and that should make the economy much, much more uh, exciting a place over the next few years than it has been for the last 25, frankly. And on top of that, the yen itself is so cheap, as hinted at by those figures, so we'd expect currency gain as well over, over time. And just in the case of Japanese investment trusts, I mean, it's interesting you've got a few trusts there, but they have very different styles, if you like. One of growth-oriented, others are value-oriented. Do you have a, a bias in well, that respect? Yeah. So we haven't really used the trusts, not because the managements aren't very good. I think often they are very interesting managements, but they don't have a structure which provides liquidity. So they tend to be medium-sized or actually in most cases, below the viability threshold, which is probably about 500 million pounds these days for market cap. And if they had zero discount models, we would probably be investing in them as part of our our, uh, exposure to Japan. But until then, liquidity is very poor and uh, we have not gone down that route. I guess that's partly because capital gains have become so large. Any decent position is going to be a significant size. Well, do you know, even uh, seven years ago, when it was much smaller, that still would have been true. Okay, so on that note, I'd like to thank you, Peter, for joining us on the podcast again. And, uh, well, last time, six months ago, we talked, um, we had just surviving the trust government. And now, well, I guess we've got to be braced for some more choppy waters ahead. I, I think that's probably right. And thank you very much, Jonathan, and a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. So when I caught up with Andrew McHattie, the editor of the Investment Trust newsletter, which he's been editing for the past 27 years, owns and runs it, I naturally asked him initially about the way that Investment Trusts and the markets have performed in the first quarter. So Andrew, it's been an interesting first quarter. We had a pretty strong January. Everybody got quite excited about that. And then since then, it's been pretty rocky with the, the banking crisis out there the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and the takeover of Credit Suisse and all the ramifications of that. And the investment trust sector, again, started off quite brightly, but has has faded away, has it not, in the last uh, couple of months? Yes, that's exactly right, Jonathan. Uh, Against this backdrop of this roller coaster of exciting news, actually, it's been a decent quarter for global equities. And the MSCI World Index in sterling is up 5.7%. And likewise, actually, for UK equities, it's been quite a solid quarter with the FTSE All Share up 3.1%. But I have to say it's been a very disappointing quarter for investment trusts. There's no sugar coating it. And in aggregate, investment trusts have fallen by 1.4%. And that's significantly down to some discount widening, I think. Yes, the discounts have broadened out across the uh, the index. So, of course, that's dominated to some extent by uh, some of the larger trusts in the way they calculate the average uh, discount. But it has been curious also because towards the end of the quarter, we actually saw some quite strong performance from some of the growth stocks and some of the uh, the tech trusts as well. They did relatively quite well more recently. Uh, it's almost like kind of those investors in those uh, particular trusts thinking that it's uh, back to the good old days. But I suspect that probably isn't the case. What's your view on that in terms of style and and so on? Yes, I I really love delving into the figures because even if you think you know the sector quite well, you can always learn something new. And I was quite surprised when I saw that both of the large US tech trusts, so 
Polar Capital Technology and Alliance Technology actually had a very decent quarter, in spite of some derating in the discounts. So Polar Capital Tech was up 13% and Alliance up 7 So they both fared actually much better than I had realised. And then you have the growth capital, which has been extremely volatile, things like Chrysalis Investments and the Shehalian Fund. I think they had a moment where the rays of sunshine appeared to alight on them just for a moment, but they, they've fallen off again. So, yes, and I, I think maybe there's some false dawns there. Yes, I, know. I read a statistic somewhere that actually in the US equity market, of the gain in the S&P 500, something like uh, half of it was down to just six companies. So it was the huge uh, companies again, just as in the past. But of course, we're against a background here where we've got uh, inflation, we hope, has peaked, though actually the inflation figures from the UK were actually up the most recent reading, still over 10%. Everybody expecting it to come down quite sharply. But the big question is, if inflation does come down that quickly, whether that's going to be because we're heading into a recession or not. So I think there is a lot of cloud, isn't there, out there? I mean, a lot of investors I talk to, they really say to me that it's more, I mean, there's always uncertainty about the way the markets are going. But the big divide between people who think that actually there's grounds for optimism, people think it's going to get worse. I mean, it's a very tricky condition. Even the central bankers have given up trying to say what they think will happen. So um, it's a tough time for investors to uh, to pick a path through this, is it not? Well, I feel you've hit the nail on the head there. And I've characterised it occasionally as rather like sitting in the waiting room at the doctor's surgery and you're not quite sure. You're, you're, you're pretty nervous about what the doctor might tell you. And it could be good news and it could be bad news. And I think that uncertainty is expressed in the market in these wide discounts where people are not willing to pay up actually for the growth opportunities and really the quite rich opportunity set we're seeing in the alternative space. But I think people are not willing to press the buy button just yet. So let's talk about the alternatives to some extent. Um, Let's uh, kick off by talking about commercial property, if we may. The big question there is we've seen a very dramatic re-rating of commercial property trusts, particularly very significant uh, capital losses, But some of the yields now are looking pretty attractive if they can be sustained. What's your thought on that? Do you think that uh, we've seen the worst in the commercial property sector? And if so, where are you finding some value? Yes, I I think there really are some very tempting yields to be had here if you're bold enough to dip your toe in the water. And I think my feeling is that we probably have seen the worst But that doesn't mean we're just about to see the best. I think we may have a quieter period ahead where we can sit tight and take those yields and maybe wait for capital growth to feed through later on in the year or perhaps next year. But I think the yields are really tremendous at the moment. So, for example, regional REIT, if you're prepared to take that specific gamble, if you like, on UK offices, then the yield there is up to 13%. And I spoke to the management, actually, and uh, they, they couldn't quite believe that the yield was 12, as it was at the time. But it's, it's even better now. And actually, if you're an income investor, you can lock in yields of 8 or 9% on trusts that have inflation-linked and sometimes government-backed revenue flows. For example, Impact Healthcare REIT. So I think there's some tremendous value there. It uh, doesn't mean you're going to get some capital gain just yet, because I think we might need the interest rates to actually turn before sentiment really shifts. 
Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, we I mentioned uh, regional REIT the other day. I mean, its numbers, actually underlying numbers, still look pretty good. I mean, normally you see a dividend yield of 11 or 12 or, or even whatever it is percent, double-digit <laughs> dividend, that means the dividends are going to be cut. But the management don't see that at the moment. No, they really don't. It's a covered dividend, and they seem fairly confident about maintaining it, although you can never guarantee it. And I think underlying that is a really important factor that maybe the market hasn't thought about very much, which is that nearly all of their properties, which are outside of London, have alternative use. So if for some reason the the demand for offices does drop, they can reuse these buildings for residential or warehousing or industrial estates. And that underwrites really the value. So no, for quite some time, they've been saying that the narrative that they're reading about in the media about offices being dead really doesn't chime with the demands they're seeing in their markets. And um, I think they have quite a strong case there. Yeah, well, that's interesting because, I mean, normally people think offices are obviously vulnerable to uh, economic slowdown. And I guess there's a sense of uh, kind of still some overhang from uh, COVID and people working from home and so on that offices aren't needed anymore. But that's an interesting anomaly because, I mean, if you're right, what you say, that is a pretty uh, remarkable uh, opportunity. You mentioned the healthcare trust. I mean, we did see the other healthcare trust, I think it's cut its dividend a little bit. So um, do you think they're a bit more vulnerable to that kind of risk? Are they not? Those two trusts, Impact and uh, Target Healthcare? Well, no, I think Target Healthcare cut its dividend to rebase it because it was uncovered. And it has been uncovered, actually, for quite some time, unlike Impact Healthcare REITs, where it is covered. And Target Healthcare had had in mind that it would be able to grow its way out of that problem and to increase its rentals to to make it covered in time. I think they realise now, because of the cost of their debt, that that target's just being pushed out further and further away, so they decided it wasn't probably realistically attainable, and for that reason they cut their dividend. What's interesting there, Jonathan, is that the shares rallied quite a bit once they cut their dividend, because I think that had just been hanging over the shares. And once that cloud dispersed, people um, felt there was a clearer path ahead. Right. But I mean, the discount on, on Target Healthcare is obviously much wider than the one on Impact Healthcare. Impact Healthcare is something around like a 15% discount, is it something, and a yield of 7%, something like that. You think that's pretty good value? Well, the the gap has narrowed quite a lot over the last few trading days. And so I think now we're seeing a bit of a normalisation there where we'll see them converge. Obviously, convergence can work in both ways, but I think we'll see that happening by with target healthcare REITs going up a little rather than impact healthcare coming down to meet it. I hope so anyway. Okay, well, let's talk about uh, some other trusts then in the alternative space. Let's... Um pick up one I know you, uh, you've had some interest in, which is a completely a different kind of vehicle, and that is um, Hydrogen One, uh, ticker HGEN. They put out some figures, but um, you picked on them for a particular reason. Tell me uh, why you've been thinking about that one. Yes, Hydrogen One growth is a curious situation because actually it was the worst faller in the first quarter, down 36% in share price terms. And whilst there has been quite a broad de-rating across the renewables infrastructure sector that has really stood out as being the worst of the lot. And yet, actually, its NAV was up in calendar year 2022 by 1.6%. 
So its NAV is 97.3 pence, and yet the shares are trading around the 50 pence mark. So the discount is really colossal. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that its assets are unquoted, and there's a great deal of scepticism at the present time about anything unquoted. So it has reassured the market. And this is very unusual in the, in the investment trust sector. But it did issue a statement to the stock exchange saying that it knew of no company specific reason for the fall in its share price. But I think many investors are still not convinced. So it'll be interesting actually next month, around the beginning of May, when the trust releases its first quarter NAV figure. And we'll see if that confirms that the asset value is holding up or not. Right, I guess. I mean, if you hadn't delved into the actual company itself, you would think that uh, all the factors are against it at the moment. It's early stage, it's unlisted, it's uh, presumably, and it still perhaps hasn't quite reached the right kind of scale that it needs to become a long-term viable vehicle. It hadn't, didn't have an opportunity to raise any more money, for example. So um, well, I have to see about that one. That's an interesting one, as you say. Before we move on from alternatives, I thought I might just quickly ask you about the infrastructure trusts. We heard uh, interesting announcements from Hickel this week. Obviously, these the core infrastructure trust, uh, Hickel-like and BBGI, they're kind of trading at discounts as well. Their yields are obviously much lower because it's a much more secure revenue stream they have. But do you think there's, uh, think there's value in that uh, particular space? And what do you make of uh, Hickel and its peers? Yes, there's a lot more value now than there was six months ago, that's for sure. I think this sector was one where we heard that terrible phrase, actually, this time it's different. And the sense, uh, I think many investors did believe that this trust would be able to sustain premium ratings forever. And clearly, that hasn't been the case. And as you say, Jonathan, the majority of them now are trading on discounts. And some of those are a little bit wider than I would have expected. I think maybe the pendulum has swung a little bit too far. And you're right, whilst the yields are not comparable to some of those enticing ones available from real estate, they're not bad, actually. And if you can lock in 6 or 7%, importantly, with some inflation linkage, then I think that's quite attractive if you're an income investor and you're willing to, really to invest in things that are pretty conservative. I guess part of that depends on what happens to interest rates from here, doesn't it? I mean, if interest rates now start to fall or we're close to a point where they start to fall again, then uh, the kind of premium over gilts and so on will, will come back in their favour because they're yielding about 5%. But if you can get, you know, a significant number on a, on a short-term gilt, that's not quite as attractive as it, as it used to be. Okay, well, you picked out a couple of uh, equity trusts that reported this week. One of them is uh, Bailey Gifford China Growth ticker BGCG, uh, and they uh, reported an NAV total return of minus 5.7 against a benchmark decline of 2.2 in sterling terms. That's for the year to end of January, not to the end of December 22. What caught your eye about this one? Yes, I think here there was really no surprise because Bailey Gifford's resolutely growth approach means that it is the worst performing of the four China trusts at the present time. And so here, this underperformance against the index was probably to be expected. And a lot of that underperformance came from stocks that we may have heard of. So things like Tencent and ByteDance, which is the unquoted company that owns TikTok. 
And uh, I think the interesting comment in the results that I picked up on is that the underperformance has also continued since that 31st of January year end. So there hasn't been any turn yet in the growth stocks in China. Yeah, so all the Chinese trusts are trading at uh, double-digit discounts, I think. So of the ones that are in the second, the four of them altogether, which of those do you actually think it looks most interesting at the moment, if I can ask you that? Yeah, I think that's quite a tough question to answer. But the one I have recommended over the others has been Fidelity China Special Situations, which I think is a little more diversified, has a decent track record actually against the peer group. But I think whichever one actually you're picking, you probably need to have a a long-term mindset. I think it's very, very difficult to call anything near-term on these, particularly as you can analyse the economic background as much as you like, and then Chinese politics get involved and change the entire picture overnight. So um, you're taking a fair risk, I think, in this sector if you're buying a single country trust. But Fidelity would be my pick at the present time. Yes, I noted that the managers of the Bailey Gifford China Growth Trust did say that China and their particular approach was, uh, quote, big risks and big opportunities. So uh, that's a sort of classic kind of higher risk thing to stick into your portfolio if that's your particular tolerance. You also picked out this week uh, Mercantile, which is a JP Morgan investment trust. Tell us why you uh, picked that one out. Yes, Mercantile is the largest of the UK mid-cap investment trust. So it's always interesting to see how it's performing. And the headline figures here indicated that it had some very, very modest degree of underperformance here with a NAV total return of minus 8.5% against the benchmark down 7.5%. But actually, underlying that, there was something special in the figures. And this was a revaluation of their cheap debt So in fact, their underperformance was quite considerably more, about four percentage points worse than that, before they revalued their debt. And this is not something I've really thought about very much of late. But Mercantile is particularly well situated on the debt front. So its weighted average cost of debt is 1.94%, which is really pretty good. It's very low. And some of that debt actually goes out to 2061. I had to double check that because it just seemed ridiculous, actually, that it would be that long dated. But what this means is that when it's revaluing its debt at fair market value, which it's doing to calculate the NAV, because interest rates have gone up, that's given it a bump in its um, NAV. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. That can make a significant difference. We've forgotten that that can be important, as it were, because interest rates have been so low and consistently low for so long. That's part of the new regime we're in. I want to move on and ask you about something else as well, which is about IPOs. We know that effectively there were no IPOs of any significance last year, first time for a long time. And uh, we haven't seen much so far this year either. But uh, there could be another one on the way. Uh, What can you tell us about that? uh, And what do you rate its chances of success? Yes, it's been such a tough market, actually, for IPOs. And I think we've been talking about these wide discounts right across the sector. That makes it tremendously difficult to offer something at asset value or, in fact, a premium to asset value once you've taken into account the costs of launch. So there has to be something special about it, and that makes it difficult for most managers. But we are about to see a new issue, uh, trying to launch anyway, 
from the managers of Ashoka India Equity, which has done very well, actually, and been able to issue quite a lot of extra stock in the market because it's traded at a premium rating. And it's not only created a good track record, but it's done so with an interesting structure where there's no base management fee at all, and it just paid on performance in shares. And against that background, the managers are now looking to launch a general emerging markets trust. And this, again, will have one or two distinguishing features. It's going to have that same fee structure, but it's also going to have a democratic overlay. So they they think the political structure is relevant in determining the returns from different emerging markets. So they're going to favour countries with a a democratic political system. So they're marketing this now. And uh, I think it does stand a good chance of getting away because the manager really does have a very strong reputation. Well, that is certainly interesting, an interesting approach and also, uh, as you say, an interesting proposal. So that's going to rule out one or two, obviously rule out uh, China. And it's obviously going to rule out Vietnam as well. And they're both quite significant parts of the Emerging Market Index. So it's going to be quite interesting to see how that would perform if it does come to the market. Well, let's hope it does. It'll be interesting to see because that seems a very innovative approach. I'm not aware of anybody else who has exactly the same fee structure as that. So only a performance fee. There have been one or two other cases, I think, in the past, but they tend not to work very well. (laughs) But uh, this time, you think it might make a difference? I mean, uh, it's worked with Ashoka India, obviously. Do you like that one, incidentally, as well? That one has been the very clear winner in that subsector over the last couple of years. So, yes, I mean, I think you, you are paying a premium rating on that one compared to its peers for that performance, but it's clearly been worthwhile. It's quite unusual to have a trust that does stand head and shoulders above its competition, but that one at the present time really is doing so. So I do like it. And I think it's interesting to have this fee structure presented to us as a positive, because, of course, the tide has generally been against performance fees in this sector. But in this case, I think it's worked quite well for everybody. So finally, uh, Andrew, looking back, as I say, you've been (laughs) reducing your newsletter for 27 years, which is... uh, pretty much on a par with how long I've been doing investment trusts. So we've both got uh, quite a lot of experience here. What's your kind of gut feeling about uh, where we're going to go from here this year? Uh, I think I can ask that question. Discounts obviously have got pretty wide. There's problems with liquidity in the market as well, particularly for smaller trusts. So we're going to see quite a lot of consolidation, I would expect, over the next uh, couple of years, particularly if the markets remain tough. But uh, I would argue that that's, uh, you know, one of the strengths of the investment trust sector, that there is a sort of Darwinian process there. Weaker brethren get taken out in one form or another. Do you share that uh, perspective now? Well, it's interesting that we've been talking about how widening discounts have diminished the returns over this first quarter. And of course, the flip side of that is that we can now invest at these much wider discounts. So I do feel there's quite a rich opportunity set available at the present time And therefore, the outlook, I think, looks quite nice, particularly if you're an income investor, because you can buy trusts that are paying you really very attractive yields, far in excess of those you're going to obtain from any interest-bearing account. And you can sit and wait for things to change in with the capital value. I'm not sure we'll see very much in the way of takeovers, which are pretty rare in this sector, but we will undoubtedly see some 
further consolidation, I think. And that's been gathering momentum over the last couple of months where we've seen a number of subscale trusts throw in the towel. Uh, I did compile a little list, actually, a few weeks ago of about half a dozen where they appeared to be too small, but also to have continuation votes coming up over the next 12 months. And I would be very surprised if all of those trusts were to continue in their present form, let's say. Indeed. Well, that's something which I've been looking at too. And uh, I have a little list too. As they say. <laughs> so anyway, we'll see how that pans out. So uh, thank you very much. That was uh, Andrew McHattie, the editor of the Investment Trust newsletter. Thank you for listening. The Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast is independently produced and edited and is listed on all leading podcast channels. You can also sign up at the website money-makers.co to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Please note these podcasts are provided for educational purposes only and nothing you have heard from any of the speakers should be regarded as constituting investment advice. If you want more news, analysis, interviews and other investment trust content, don't forget to look at the Moneymakers Circle, available now for a modest subscription at the website.